Good morning. I'm Susan Lesky. Welcome this morning. So glad all of you are here this beautiful, glorious weekend. This morning I'm reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 30. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you so much for all of those that could be with us this morning. I pray that you would open our minds and hearts, um, give us understanding to see who you are, to know you better, and to be drawn closer to your son. I pray that you would give Matthew words to speak to us this morning, and that we would hear and listen and understand. Also, that we would leave this place just one step closer to Jesus, and that we'd be able to share that with those around us in our community. I thank you for all these things and ask them in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Man, it's really great when your wife prays for you. Just love that. She's pretty neat. I don't know if you guys knew that. So, we've all seen, I'm sure, whatever the sport is. This morning I'm thinking of football, right? That, that moment when you're watching the game and the camera goes close in and you see the coach on the sideline with the team sitting on the bench, right? And what does he pull out always right in that moment? 
a little light board, right? And he's like, okay, we got this here. And, you know, you know, Irv, you're going to go here. And then Boom Boom's going to come across. And he's going to catch it right here. And we're going to get And you're going to go into the game. We're going to score a touchdown. We're going to win the game. Right? And they're all like, yeah, coach, yeah, we're going to do that. That's what we're going to do. Now, when the coach writes up this play on the sideline, do you think that that's the first time that they've seen that play? No, it's not the first time they've seen it. Now, it may happen. One, you know, every once in a while, there's some new play like, hey, we're going to try this and see if it works, and maybe it will, and then we win the game on this new play we never did before. But most often, it's a play that they know and they have practice, and the coach is reminding them at exactly the moment in the game when they need it so they can execute on that play in hopes of victory, at least victory in that play, Right? Romans 8, 28, probably the most famous Christian coffee cup verse of all Christian coffee cup verses. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I have questions. What does it look like that he's working What things are the all things? What is the good that is being worked towards? Who are those who love God? What does it mean to be called? What is his purpose? See, Part of what makes Romans 8.28 so powerful is not that you're pulling it out for the first time in the moment of suffering when you need it in that crisis, unpracticed. Then the play, as it were, isn't going to work. It's not going to have power. Now, it can because it's God's word. Of course, that's possible. He can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. He can do anything he wants. But I think the power to be found in Romans 8.28 is that we've practiced it beforehand, we've studied it, we understand it. And part of how we understand it is that we have to know it in its context. You guys, I'm going to keep doing this until the day I die, maybe even in this pulpit. I'm going to keep telling you that context is king and that we can't rip verses out of their context because a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. (laughs) Write that down and you can figure it out later. And so... What Romans 8.28 is, what, what Paul is trying to do for us is he's drawn out a play for us as well, right? You remember this, and, and, and there's a story in which this play operates. There's a larger playbook that we need to make sure that we understand, right? And we can sum up that playbook right here in four words. What are those four words? Creation. Fall. Rescue and new creation. We know that here is when Jesus came. And so creation, creation is telling us, right? Creation is the reality of this valley which surrounds us, which we're enjoying on this long holiday weekend. It's mountains and valleys. It's bright sunshine. And, and right now, anyway, some green grass and, and beautiful mountainscapes and, and a river running through it. 
It's the beauty of all of that creation that was made at the very beginning of time. We know because we're Christians that, that a fall happened and that that whole creation was stained with sin and death, which brought about the suffering that Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 17. This present time, right? We're in this present time, he says in Romans 8, 17. That's the time that we are functioning between rescue and new creation. We know that in rescue, Jesus came into the world to bring in the kingdom of God where we get tastes of creation because he released the spirit into the world. That's what we saw last time, right? We are experiencing the first fruits of the spirit. We have the spirit inside of us. And so that we get tastes of this new creation into the present time as the kingdom breaks in. And it's all headed towards this time when Jesus will come back and he will complete what he started. And on this place, he says at the very end of the story in Revelation 22, look, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. And so we must understand this bit of the story, Romans 8, 28, and our suffering, our suffering of this present time in light of the larger story. And the only way that we're going to be able to really understand Romans 8.28 and its near context is in light of that larger story. Because when we stand in this present time, we know that this is the now. Yes, but it's not yet. That's the tension. The Christian life is filled with so many tensions. And we, we get tastes of the not yet in the now, but the now is not yet. It's here. It's not yet. And that's part of the difficulty of living in this age with the first fruits of the Spirit. We often need reminding that the present time can't fully be like that future time. We've seen some of the glory of God breaking in now, but we know that it hasn't broken all the way in. That's exactly what this time is then, is an experience of that now and not yet. We're not yet all the way to new creation. And, and here's where I think of Jesus, right? Because that's where Jesus is. Jesus came into this present time at just the right time, wrote Paul. And he walked through his own suffering and he died and he was resurrected and he was given a new glorified body and he's in the presence of the Father right now. We know that. And we're going to be with him one day and he with us. But that means that we still have to walk the same pathway to get where we're from, to where he is, through this fallen age, fraught with suffering. That's what Paul is on about in chapter 8, verse 17. In this way, we suffer with him so that, what? Are you, do you have your Bibles open, Romans 8? So that what? we may also be glorified with him. That's the not yet. So I'm in this age walking with Jesus knowing that's where I'm headed. And we must hold Romans 8, 17 firmly in our minds because Paul never strays from this focus of future glory. It is a major theme of chapter eight. 
Look at verse 18. Yes, there are sufferings in this present time, but they're not worth comparing to future glory. 19 to 21. Yes, all of creation groans under the curse and its effects, but it's eager anticipation, remember? It's like it's on tiptoes, like just waiting. I can't wait. It's for the full revelation and glorification of the sons and daughters of God so that new creation can happen for all of creation. Yes, Christians groan, we see, because of the sufferings of this present time. Why? Because we've been given the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Why does that create groans? Because the Spirit is a taste of new creation. He is a taste of what life could be and will fully be. He is a bringer in our lives of increasing glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And what that does, that increasing glory, is create eager waiting in us for full adoption and redemption of our bodies, right? We want to grow one step closer to Jesus, and the ultimate aim of that is to have fully redeemed and glorified bodies, which is meant to create in us a hope for that which we do not see, but is beyond the horizon of what we can now see to a glorious not Yet, which we eagerly wait for with patience, right? Like, you got, can't wait. Okay, okay, we can be patient. Oh, you're going to wait again. Oh, we're just going to be patient, okay? A hope which we've been given glimpses of in the rest of the story. And this promise of future glory births in us. That was Paul, where we ended last time, in us a hope that has the power to sustain us in the longing and the waiting and the groaning of this present time. That's what Paul gave us. You have a hope that I mean to sustain you, to make it through this present time to new creation. Hope for that. Okay, hope for what's coming. But remarkably and thankfully, hope is not all Paul or God, more importantly, gives us to sustain us through the present age of suffering. Romans 8, 26. In the same way. So you, you heard Susan read from 16 all the way down there, right? In this, and it ended with, with hope. Now in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, what way, Paul? Namely, in the same way that our hope in the not yet new creation glory sustains us in the now, so also the Holy Spirit sustains us in the now by helping us talk with God about and look forward to the not yet. Romans 8, 26 to 27, the Spirit, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, for the saints, with inexpressible groanings. And I'm going I'm to insert it here because this next bit has some pronouns that could confuse us and we might not know who the pronouns are referring to. I'm going to tell you who I think they're referring to. And he, or namely God, the searcher of hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because he, namely the Spirit, 
intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All right. I've been waiting for this moment since Wednesday morning. I have seen something in this text that I have never seen before, which I love when God does that. When we take the rake of the work of interpretation over the Bible and new diamonds burst forth from the soil of the scripture. God has done that for me. And, and as I was working that out and trying to figure it out, because I'm a highly visual person, and as you know, very artistic, I decided I needed to draw a little man. Or let's just call him a humanoid to represent all the brothers and sisters. Huh? Huh? Yeah, you can applaud. That's okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. (laughs) The first thing that Paul pictures for us is us. The us who are in this present time of suffering. So that's what he's doing, all right? So what I'm giving you is us in this time, this time of suffering. And, you know, because we're little humanoids, we got little hearts, right? And the heart in the Bible represents the totality of who we are, okay? It's all of who we are, all of our emotions, thoughts, mind, will, spirit, all of that kind of wrapped up in this thing that can be called the heart. And this suffering, Paul says, this this person, us, living in this time of suffering, causes a weakness in us. And I think by context... The weakness is our difficulty in seeing beyond the present time, beyond the horizon, past our times of suffering to new creation, right? Isn't that true? We get so blinded to seeing all that God wants us to see that's coming, and we get wrapped up and consumed by suffering in this present time, and it gets so hard to see beyond that. That's what the shadow of suffering and affliction does. When it comes on us, It's like all we can see is darkness ahead. It's hard to see anything but. And it has the tendency to steal the hope that he talks about in verses 24 and 25. And get us down. Our daubers are down, as my grandpa would say. We groan in the futility of it and the frustration of it. And sometimes, honestly, if we're honest in a place that's safe with our really closest friends, we just want to give up because we don't see any way through. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. We just can't imagine having the strength to go another step. Sometimes it's just like you don't even know how you're going to make it another moment. And then you think, I got another day? Another week? Another month? I can't do this. Can you remember a time like that in your life? Or maybe you're living in a time like that in your life. Or maybe you know someone who's living in a time like that in your life. Or... 
Maybe everything is sunshine and roses right now, and I do not mean to steal your joy, but we are in an age that is fraught with suffering, and between here and the time that you die, you will face suffering again, even if it's just that last bit of suffering of your death. And here's the amazing thing that Paul tells us. In Jesus, because of Jesus' request, John 14, 6, and the Father's supply, we have been given a helper. We've been given a helper. So we've got this little heart, and from the Father, from the Father, let's put the Father up here, from the Father comes a helper, namely, Paul says, the Spirit. We've been given the Spirit. The Spirit comes alongside of us in the midst of that weakness and frustration and exhaustion and what the Spirit does because He resides inside of us. He enters into our experience in the present and He groans with us. This is absolutely stunning and remarkable. And He doesn't pray for us yet. That's actually not in the original in verse 26. It just says, the Spirit himself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. I think prayer is coming. That's not yet. That's later in the text. Right now, what I think Paul wants us to see is that the Spirit enters into us and our experience and comes alongside and sometimes the silence that we have because we don't know what to say anymore. And he groans. Not for us. Okay, and there's a difference. Prepositions are so important. You guys' grammar is so important. (laughs) He groans. There's an English teacher. (laughs) He groans on behalf of us. In our stead, because of our weakness, the Spirit enters into the intimacy of our reality takes that on fully and groans. And groans. Shoulder to shoulder. Side by side. Isn't this absolutely remarkable what we've seen in this text that all creation groans and that we like creation groans and now God himself groans. Identifying with us. Stepping into our groanings with his own inexpressible groans. Do you know what inexpressible means? Have you, have you thought about this? It means, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, not able to be expressed. Inexpressible. Have you ever been in such a situation of difficulty and suffering and stress or chaos, whatever it is, and someone says, Just tell me, what what are you going through right now? And you realize you can't. Like, none of the words that come out of your mouth or enter into your mind don't seem at all to communicate what you are feeling inside. The depth of your desperation. And so you you just shake your head. I, I, I I, I don't know what to tell you. It's and, you, and you've got nothing. The pain is unable to be expressed. Which is so hard, isn't it? 
because you desperately want to express it. Man, when things are bad, like I want someone there. I want someone in with me. I want them to know me. I want them to understand. I want someone to share it with me. And the Spirit is that someone (laughs) because He literally steps into us and our experience and knows us so well and knows those things that we cannot even put into words. And friends, what could be more helpful than this kind of help? The Spirit enters into our utter desperation and confusion, right? Because isn't that so much what happens when we're in like really intense suffering? It's so confusing. Why is this happening to me? You, you, you see the complex of the things that have orchestrated themselves to make your life a living hell. And you're like, why? I don't understand. And he enters into that, into the futility of the now as we groan for the not yet, right? Because that's what we're groaning for. I just want it over. I just want to be on the other side of this. Oh my goodness, I want to be on the other side of this. And then what happens? <laughs> this, This is so amazing. God, God, Paul says, enters into the conversation that is going on as the Spirit has entered into our experience, knowing us utterly, God enters into that experience, Paul says. And Paul supplies in verse 27 a new name for God. Here along with all the other biblical names of God, he is called the searcher of hearts. The word Paul uses for searcher here, it, it comes from the root, which success, it suggests someone lighting a torch. And you imagine like a torch, a big fiery torch, and going into like a really dark cave. That's like, that's what this word references when it says searcher. God is this searcher of hearts hearts searching in the darkness of who we are. Have have you ever been in a place so dark that you can literally see nothing? I've been there. Went to Jewel Cave one time and they turned off all the lights at one moment and it was a darkness that you could feel. Like I held my hand right here. I could see nothing. I was opening my eyes. I could see nothing. Like it was that dark. What happens when it gets that dark? Sometimes what happens almost is like you're, you're like trying to strain your eyes to see. And, and then have you ever noticed how like your ears even start to strain because you're just like trying to hear anything so you can just find your way around? Like, and in that kind of darkness, I mean, think about what Jeremiah says of the human heart. What does he say? Who can know it? Who can know it? And Paul says, God can. That's who He is the searcher of hearts. He brings the torch of his unending, penetrating gaze and he enters into the very darkest corners and recesses of our suffering being and he roots around in there so that he knows and understands fully all our weakness and our inability to see the bigger picture, the bigger picture of our suffering in light of his future glory that he's bringing in. He enters into our hearts and he knows all of that as he searches our hearts. And not only does he understand and know us, but the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, verse 27. The Spirit, right? What Spirit? The Spirit now who has so closely identified with us and has entered into our experience and 
knows that experience perfectly. And there it is right now in verse 27 that the next step happens. The Spirit moves from groaning on our behalf to interceding for us. And he does it perfectly because he's praying according to the will of God. Which means, okay, are you tracking with me now? (laughs) Which means that the Spirit is this perfect mediator between the Father and us. And there is this amazing conversation happening between God and the Spirit about us on our behalf, even while we limp along in our talking to them. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. The Spirit knows us and knows our experience intimately. The Father knows us because he searched our hearts. The Spirit knows how to talk to the Father about us because he knows the Father's will for us and he speaks accordingly. So there is this perfect, weakness-free communication that is happening inside of us at all times. Did you know that walking in this morning? I don't know that I knew it this clearly before this week. That that is happening. There, there is this conversation happening at all times in the life of the believer. What Paul wants you and I to understand in the weakness of our praying that gets all wrapped up in and stuck in the now of our suffering because of our suffering and can't see the not yet. What Paul wants us to see is that the Father and the Spirit reside within us so that perfect prayers are always being prayed for us. Thank you, God. N.T. Wright. We discover that the transcendent creator is continually in communion with the spirit who dwells in the heart of his people. God understands what the spirit is saying, even though we do not. God hears and answers the prayer which we only know as painful groanings. The tossings, and listen to this. Listen to this about the Spirit. I think Wright is so on to something here. The tossings and the turnings of the Spirit on our behalf before our Divine Father, the pains and puzzles of the world and us on His heart. That is so comforting to me right now. To know that that spirit knows me that way and feels for me that way and for you that way. Which, Wright goes on to say, hints at something deeper than merely prayer in the way that God wants or approves. Oh, come on now. We need to hear this. You've heard too many sermons about how you don't know how to pray. Too many, I fear. And what I want you to see is that in all your weakness and in all your inability, there is a Father perfectly communicating with His Spirit on your behalf at all times. 
Holy cow, what freedom this should bring us today, family. Oh, my brothers and sisters, what freedom, what burdens. You don't have to prove yourself to God in prayer. You don't have to perform before God in prayer. He knows how messed up you are. He knows how inelegant and uneloquent you are. And he doesn't care. What he cares about is you. This hints at something deeper than merely prayer in the way that God wants or approves. No. God's own life, love, and energy are involved in the process. The Christian, precisely at the point of weakness and uncertainty, of inability and struggle, becomes the place at which the triune God is revealed in person <laughs> it's just it's just so i'm just going to keep describing it again and again but but you should ask wait a second becomes the place at which the triune what triune god okay i see i see god the father i think this god the father that paul's referring to i see this i see the spirit talked about here what does right mean triune god well we have to we have to cheat a little bit, okay? We, we got to go ahead in Romans. See, if y'all been reading ahead, you'd, you'd be like, I have the answer. <laughs> if you read ahead in Romans 8, 33 and 34, you see that it is not only God and not only the Spirit who are always praying for us in our weakness, but also the Son at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now, defending us from all charges against us and guaranteeing our salvation when the not yet arrives. Who can bring an accusation, accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Messiah Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Oh my goodness, it gets better. Jesus is right here at the right hand of the Father, interceding to the Father for us, entering into this conversation in our inability and our weakness Wow! The triune God. I, I need to just let that sink in for you. I mean, you just need to look at that and pray about that, ironically. that at my point of weakness, I become the place where the triune God is operating. That's not easy to believe. Can we be honest? Is this a safe place? That, it's, it, for just like a human, <laughs> in my mortality and finitude, like, intellectually and on the visual, it can sound really great and you can be like, amen. And, and then what's going to happen? You're going to go out into suffering. Ed Welch, who is a licensed psychologist, has been a faculty member at Christian Counseling and Education Foundation for over 40 years. He's been counseling people and caring for souls for 40 years has a Master of Divinity, a PhD. 
he says this. Feelings matter. Your feelings... Okay, so why am I, why am I bringing that up? Why, why do I say that? Because sufferings evoke a lot of feelings. A lot of feelings. And sometimes feelings run headlong into something like this and win over this. Because we feel the suffering and we don't feel this. Your feelings, says Welch, however, don't reveal the entire story. They are wretched at predicting the future. How many times have you listened to your feelings and your suffering prognosticate your future and believed them? They're wretched at predicting the future. They are not qualified to reveal what is most important. Your emotions might tell you that you are alone and God is far away. As a general rule, listen, and this is hard. This stinks. As a general rule, the more troubled, painful, or chaotic your world, the more you will feel that God is distant, far away, up in heaven, detached. But your feelings are unreliable. You feel alone, so you believe you are, but you're not. The truth is God is near. He is intensely personal. He talks, he listens, he makes promises, he comes near to you, and he's delighted when you draw near to him. He knows his people by name, by name. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head, when it falls, when it's gray, even if you're bald. He pursues the one person who has gotten lost. He speaks about his love for you nonstop aware that you might not listen the first 10 times he says it. (laughs) Read the Bible. He just keeps saying it. The entire Bible is about, still Welch, the entire Bible is about God's rescue mission. Thanks, Ed, for supporting my diagram. The entire Bible is about God's rescue mission so that we might be close to him as he always intended us to be. Our mission is to live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We hope for what we do not see. Those things sound familiar and together? Which means that the way that we're going to live is by what God says and with eyes that see both the seen and the unseen. So I have to live by faith and not by sight and I have to see the suffering but I have to see the not seen that's the not yet. And faith are the glasses that I put on that sometimes, right, as Christians we just have to admit like we got our suffering And then some jerk comes along in the midst of your suffering and goes, you know, God's working all things together for your good. (laughs) And then you give them, you know, one of your digits on your hand. I'm not saying which one. When when what we really need is we need to put on these these eyes of of faith. And, And sometimes... 
it feels uncomfortable at first, right? Like, like it's like, I don't really, is this, I need a new prescription. <laughs> and, and we put them up. <clears throat> Maybe it's like this. You know, pilots are flying along sometimes. and They get training for this, right? What happens? They're flying along on a sunny day, and what happens? All of a sudden, they hit a storm. They can't see anything out the windshield, right? It's just gray. So what do they have to do? They have to fly by their instruments. They have to take data in that isn't accordant with what they can see because they can't see anything. Nothing. And actually, in that situation, their instruments are revealing more to them than their eyes could reveal. And faith is like that sometimes. What we have to do, faith is, it's flying by the instruments. It doesn't, everything around us in our circumstance seems to tell us something else, but the instruments are meaning, faith is meaning to tell us more. Faith in God, what he says versus our emotions can be like that. Feelings in our suffering say there is no hope. And the Bible says hope in God. Feelings in the suffering say I am alone. The Bible says the Spirit himself is interceding with inexpressible groanings. Christ is interceding for you. Feelings in the suffering say his words to me cannot be true. How often have you thought and maybe never even said, I know he says he loves everybody, but I'm the exception. I, I must be the exception to the rule. Look at, look at my life. He loves others, but not me. To which we must say is, is that really Jesus talking? Is that, is that what Jesus sounds like or looks like. The Bible shows me a man who always moved towards those who were hurting most. His heart is drawn to suffering and pain. He never turned away from anyone who came to him. He says that, you, that he loves you and you can pour out your heart before him. And so maybe right now these this text in 8, 26, and 27 and, and the visual that I think that it evokes, maybe, maybe it doesn't seem to matter to you right now. But you know what I would like you to do is I would like you to tell him even that. <laughs> like, just tell him. Like, if you go out and, you, and you, you get into your car and the suffering just overwhelms you and you put your head on the steering wheel, just, just say, it all sounded so good what he said in that auditorium, God, but I'm just having trouble believing it. Just, can you help it matter to me? Can, can you help me believe that you're actually here and the Spirit is here because I don't see it, I don't feel it? Just pour out your heart before him. And then be encouraged because if you do even that, that is the spirit in you. <laughs> that is his life and his power operating in you. And all of that, all of that, I've just taken you through six, verse 16 to 27, is what causes Paul to reflect on what God is doing in this larger story, right? And this is what he's, I'm running out of room. This is the all things. 
that Paul is talking about. It, it, it's actually, it's this. It, this is the all things that God is working together. He's working together this reality of him in you. He, he's working together your suffering in this present time of this age between rescue and new creation. He's working all things for the good. Well, what is the good? Well, if we know anything about Paul so far now in this context, in this story, for this good. And there may be some good that we experience now. There, there, there can be some relief because of this reality and believing it and trusting it. And, and there can be things that can be turned around in the suffering of this present age, but, but we can't get overconfident that the suffering of this present age is going to end. It's, it's not until Jesus comes back. And so he's working all these things for this good, this new creation good, this future glory. That's what Paul has had in mind all along, Right? And there are things that we know and that we don't know in this time. And, that, and that's what's hard as a believer. We, we know, Paul says, about a groaning creation. We, we know about a groaning humanity under Jesus. We know about suffering and affliction in the present. Verses 24 and 25, we see the hope. Verses 26 and 27, we see the Trinitarian presence of God in us. These are the things that we know that will sustain us into the future glory of verse 18. But there are also things we don't know in this time. We don't know what to always pray for as we got verse 26. We do not know God's mind in the way that he knows the mind of the Spirit. Who has known the mind of the Lord, the Scriptures say. We do not know why God always does what he does in the finer details of our lives. Why God orchestrates the events of our lives in the here and now the way he does in each and every moment so that there is this tension in our understanding between a good and powerful God for us, and evil that happens to us. And many of us have lots of questions about such things. We want to know, but we must admit, family, that there is so much that we do not know. And so now, in all of that, now we're ready to hear Romans 8, 28. To study it in all that has come in light of all that has come before it and as summing up all that has come before it because that's what it's doing. It's summing up all of this. And in Romans 8, 28, I'll go quickly. There are five things, I think at least five things that we can know about God's sovereignty in our collective story in this present age fraught with suffering. Number one, from Romans 8, 28, we know that God is at work in our lives. God is working. He is exerting his sovereign reign and power to ceaselessly, energetically, and purposely be active on our behalf. Number two, we know that God is at work for the good, who are all part of his family, his children, heirs of God, he has said, and co-heirs of the Messiah. God is wholly good, and everything he does, therefore, is good. He can do no evil. All his works are an expression of his goodness. And he is working all of our experiences, some of them good, some of them not, for our ultimate and future good. Our final salvation in a new heavens and a new earth, radiant with his glory. And that should be no surprise to us that the good he's talking about is our future good because he's given the hints all the way along. 
It is a glory that is to be revealed, verse 18. It is a creation that is eagerly waiting with anticipation for something that's not yet here. It's Christians, verse 19, Christians eagerly waiting for adoption and redemption. Verse 23, we hope for what we do not see, eagerly waiting with patience. We know there is a not yet, yet to be revealed good. Number three, we know that God works for that not yet good in all things that happen in the now. Note, Paul does not say that all things are good. Christians have made that mistake with this text. Don't call evil bad or good. It's not good. Paul doesn't say all things are good. He says he's working all things, some evil, some bad, for good. They are being used in the providence of God to bring us to glory, to bring about the completion of God's eternal plan for his children. Nothing is beyond the scope of his power. Nothing. And there should be this strange comfort that comes that even our sufferings, even the sufferings that we are in are from his hand. That might be hard to process. One of my favorite stories is of Charles Spurgeon who was in a meeting with his deacons one time. Charles suffered horribly from gout, just this incredibly painful thing. And and this night as he was meeting with his deacons, he was suffering so badly and screaming so badly and unrelentingly that all the deacons fled from the room. And finally, when things got quiet again, one of the deacons came in and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, how how can you possibly believe that God is in, in control of this in your life? And here's, here's how he responded. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Oh, would that be bitterness indeed. Now, why would Charles say that that would be bitter? Because if his sufferings were not from God and under his sovereign sway, that would mean that there is something outside of his control, which is a far worse preposition indeed, right? It would be to say that if all things, if this is, if God's, if this is the the totality of the world and God is sovereign over all things and my suffering is, it's here, right? And we say, oh, I just, I can't believe that God would be in control of my suffering. What that means is you just took that suffering and you put it over here, outside of his control. Well, who's controlling that? And if it's not in God's control, that means he can't do anything about it. I, I don't like that picture. I like that picture, along with Charles even though there's things that I don't understand about that, that I, that I don't know. Number four, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who love him. Do not hear this as a condition. It's not a condition. I've heard this taught that it's, if you love God, then he'll work things together for your good. Really? How much do I have to love him then? How strong does my love have to be? Does it always have to be there? What if it's not always there? Then he's not going to work for my good? It's not a condition. Family, it's merely a description. It's just a description. 
He's describing his people. We are the God lovers, right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. That's who we are. And he works all things for the good of those who love him, which is you when you believe in Jesus. Number five, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, which he elaborates on in 29 and 30. So we do not always understand what God is doing, okay? Can we admit that? How can we? we? We are mere mortals. He is immortal. We are mere creatures. He is the creator. How can the pot say to the potter, what have you done? But what we do know in the words of Douglas Moo is that in 828, God promises that nothing will touch our lives that is not under the control and direction of our loving Heavenly Father. Everything we do and say, everything people do to us or say about us, every experience we will ever have, all are sovereignly used by God for our good. We will not always understand how the things we experience work to good, and we will certainly not always enjoy them. But we do know that nothing comes into our lives that God does not allow and use for his own beneficent purposes. It is not. Here's what Paul is telling us and the Romans. It's not that we live in the best possible world, but that we are being prepared for the best possible world in the best possible way. That's what we just have to stake our lives on. And what is this preparation? You guys have been really attentive. I'm coming to the close now. I'm landing the plane. What is this preparation that we're being prepared for the best possible world in the best possible way? Well, Paul calls this preparation God's purpose. He says we are called according to his purpose. And what is this purpose? Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So here's what God is doing. Those he foreknew. Okay, this isn't merely, this isn't like an intellectual knowledge. This isn't God looking down the timeline of history and saying, okay, I know beforehand everybody who's gonna pick me. That's not what foreknow means in the Bible. Knowledge in the Bible is, is it communicates care. It communicates affection, it, right? Like, Adam knew Eve. There's, there's this intimate knowledge that's going on there. So what Paul is saying is, is that before time, what, what God did was he foreknew us. He essentially foreloved us. He knew he was going to create you and he set his affection, love, care upon you. And then those he foreknew, he predestined. Now here's God's decisive action and willing that now those that, like, I love you. Jim, I love you. I love you so much. Now I am marking you. You're mine. I'm choosing you. And you will be my child. And what I'm going to work out in your life is I'm going to form you and shape you and mold you into the image of my son, Jesus. Why? Because I'm a daddy and I like big families. And I'm going to conform you into the image of my son so that because he's the firstborn among many, many brothers and sisters. That is the purpose which the love and decisive action of God was headed all along. So here we are at the end of the sermon. There was a lot in there, <laughs> right? I feel like there was a lot in there. I don't know how much I'm going to remember, and I'm preaching it. 
So let's step through it one more time. Verses 24 and 25. God has revealed a hope that we do not yet see a new creation that is meant to sustain us in a fallen creation. Verses 26 and 27. And God has also sent his spirit to step into our experience and groan with us and have a perfect prayerful conversation with the Father. And in this way, he helps us in our weakness, sustaining us in a fallen creation. Verse 28, and we know that all those things that he is doing in our lives and all the good and bad experiences that we have are working for our ultimate good on the other side of a fallen creation. Verse 29, and we know this because as the people of God, those who love God and are called by God, we have been loved and chosen by God before time to enter into a relationship with him. And we know that all of that is towards God's helping us become like Jesus in this time, 2 Corinthians 3.18, transformed into ever-increasing glory. But far more importantly, that that work is going to be completed when we share in his glory, in the glory of a new heavens and a new earth. That's a cool story. Happy Memorial Day. And do you know what? You know what, family? You guys are just so great. You're all my brothers and sisters, and I love you. Do you know that this slight momentary trouble of ours is working to produce, is working to produce a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, lasting forever because we don't look at the things that can be seen, but at the things that can't be seen. After all, the things that you see here are today, are here today and gone tomorrow. But the things you can't see are going to be everlasting. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? Nothing, absolutely nothing can get in the way of the unstoppable purpose of God to get us to glory. For those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Do you notice that he just put glorified in the past tense? Now, why on earth did he do that? Because I haven't been, I can tell you right now, I ain't been glorified yet. Why did he do that? I think he did it because Paul believes this so firmly that he can talk about his glorification in the past tense. I know that this is so real and it's going to happen. I'm just going to assume in one sense it already has because this unstoppable change, there is nothing stopping this train. I've been known, I have been loved, I have been chosen, I have been saved, I have been justified. Oh, I will be glorified. You can bet on that. Put all your money on that chip because it's going to pay. Worship team, would you come up? Can we embrace... Can, can, can you imagine the kind of glory that could be produced in a group of brothers and sisters in a church family who believe that their sufferings are producing this kind of glory. And what a church equipped with this vivid picture of our present and future hope. A church. A bride. <laughs> how she would live. And, and now we know how to talk about the play rightly with each other, right? I hope you can think about this and think, how do I encourage then a brother and sister in suffering? 
Jesus is coming soon. And I want us to be like a bride waiting for the groom. <laughs> Singing. Singing to him. We're going to be a church ready for you, Jesus. We're not going to get so wrapped up in our present sufferings that we don't remember that you're coming. Every heart longing for our king. Saying, just like at the end of the story, even so, come, Lord Jesus.